Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And I'm so thrilled today to welcome my soulmate, one of my best friends in the whole world, <laughs> MK Lawson. Hi, MK. Hi. I'm so excited to meet you finally. I know. <laughs> Melissa and I, after years of sort of like mutually knowing each other, or like, I don't know, proxy knowing each other <laughs> as Caleb's best, best, good best friends. Oh, that's so nice. Worlds colliding, but in the best way. <laughs> in the best way. So MK, where are you joining us from today? I'm in New York City. I'm in Manhattan, East Village. I narrowed that down like bit by bit. East Village. <laughs> yeah. So would you tell us about your, about Team Lawson, you know, your family growing up and in your family now? I was excited by this when you told me I would get to talk about it. Is that a weird thing that you can cut it out if that's a weird thing to <laughs> that's say? That's not weird. But at I was all. excited that I got to start off by talking about everyone. I live currently live with my partner and our two cats, George and Cleo, <laughs> in aforementioned apartment. Uh, George and Cleo are almost twelve years old, actually. Wow. I've been with my partner a long time. Which, if you can hear me, you probably can't tell that I look young for my age, but we've been together almost 15 years total. Wow. Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. Which when people see me there, they think something nefarious has gone on because <laughs> I don't look my age, but I am significantly older than I look. But you can't know that on this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I sound my, my mature uh, mid to late thirties age. But um, growing up, I grew up in South Carolina I have two sisters. I'm the oldest of three. My, I have a sister who's 18 months younger than me, my sister Charlotte. So we're, we were almost like twins. And then my youngest sister, JC, was a total surprise. She is 12 years younger than me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of had this four top family that I think of growing up. And then JC came along and like, she was kind of like a steroid hit, actually. She she is like an, a kind of angel to my family. I think we are all really grateful she came along. But no one asked this, but I was in sixth grade when my parents got pregnant. So I was completely and utterly disgusted. <laughs> was disgusting. I was not interested. My sister Charlotte had been like praying and praying and praying for a new baby. So she got her wish. But now JC and I are like best friends. So, um, and I have a mom and dad. It went in a weird order. <laughs> I am biologically made by a man and woman. Um, my mom and dad, my dad, Jack, who passed away almost nine years ago. Wow. And my mom, Paula, whose whole family is Greek. My dad's whole family is Southern. So they had a big fat Greek wedding thing happen. And then then had us. My sister is now married. My sister Charlotte is married and has three kids as well. Um, her kids all sort of prayed for each other too. come to think of it. That's like a <laughs> cool family tradition. My nephew, Jack, who is like my total buddy, he's eight. My nephew, Andrew is six. He prayed for Katie, who is three. <laughs> she is the total pistol. And Katie prayed and prayed and prayed for on the way, baby number four, Aww. baby Caleb. Is that for sure? Oh, They're going to name him Caleb. It's it's a hundred percent. It's like been on. It's like been written on things and oh. posted on social media. So number four, I'll have a little. 
best friend Caleb and a nephew Caleb. Oh, I'm sure I'll call him KB too. Yeah, do uh, it. You have my permission. Habit. He's earned it. So four <laughs> nieces and almost, almost four total. Yeah, that's that's sort of the family. Yeah, I love that. You sound close. That's nice. Yes, as I'm sure we'll get to, I have a feeling it is inevitable to come up later based on this episode that Mm. I watched, that (laughs) there were a a handful of dark years around losing my dad where there was just so much loss in my family that, yeah, it's sort of like we have what's left, which is a fine thing. It's a beautiful thing. But I think that in particular made us close. Mm. Well, what is your history with this show, Parenthood? I have never seen it before. Newbie. I was a total (laughs) newbie, but I got really hooked watching this episode. Oh, good. It's a good one, I think. It's so good. It's so um, important. I wish I could think of a better word. It just seems like that was one of the most legitimate hours I spent watching television. I was like, wow. this is the most legitimate conversation I've ever seen on a television show. I mean, maybe it, it would rank. It would definitely rank. <laughs> but I I had never watched it. But the cast is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's such like home runs. It reminds me a bit of that show, Brothers and Sisters. I've heard that and I've never seen Brothers and Sisters, but yeah, I've heard comparisons. I don't know if it's as good as this, she says after one episode. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I really felt hooked. I thought the performances are great. I thought just the content was real. Oh, great. Yay. Well, let's dive in. (laughs) Yay. Today we're discussing season two, episode 11, Damage Control. It was written by Carrie Aaron, directed by Lawrence Trilling. It originally aired on January 4th, 2011. And I couldn't find the NBC synopsis, so here's the Hulu synopsis. <laughs> Crosby has trouble teaching Jabbar to clean his room. Meanwhile, Zeke finds Drew drinking beer with guys from school. Adam and Christina get to know Alex at dinner with Hattie and Max. Joel and Julia explain death to Sydney. <laughs> There's something about the way I read that. I just thought, death to Sydney. <laughs> oh, no. It's ghost face. Hello, Sydney. <laughs> Do you want to die, Sydney? How's oh. your bird doing? Oh. <laughs> Not well. Well, first of all, in this episode, we have... Friday Night Lights Alert! <laughs> One of... Bradley's friends, that's how he's credited. I don't know why he's not Drew's friends. Drew's friends. But but, I guess he's not really friends with them. But anyway, Mm. one of those high school guys is played by Jeff Rossick, who played Buddy Jr. on Friday Night Lights. I recognized him right away just because I recently did a rewatch of Friday Night Lights. So I was like, look at that, little Buddy Jr. Yeah. So Drew has these guys over because they heard that there's beer there. I thought it was odd that one of the guys called them brewskis. It felt a little, it's like, is that what? Forced. 15-year-old guys <laughs> call them? Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the first little random thing I looked up is that according to Google Translate, Déjeme por favor verle desnudo <laughs> does in fact mean, please let me see you naked. So Zeke is bilingual? <laughs> <laughs> he just learned that phrase for when he travels. That's what I think. <laughs> oh. oh, no. Useful. Yeah. 
Maybe. I think you might be right. That's yeah, sad. That's sad. <laughs> By the way, could I just say that conversation that all those boys are having about their teachers made me super uncomfortable. Oh, I, <laughs> I guess was just, so. I was really horrified. Let's hope that that's not how people talk about their teachers. Let's let's hope they're like, I learned useful things in class today. What a hardworking and kind person who teaches me. I respect her very much. Like that's that's <laughs> what I'm hoping. It's really I don't going think down. their conversations are like that either. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zeke busts Drew for the drinking. Grandson, when I give you that beer at Thanksgiving, this isn't what I had in mind. I know. I totally know that. Drew, you look at me. You are such a good kid. Now, you don't need to impress anybody. You hear me? All right. And I don't want this to happen again. Right? Okay. How do you think Zeke handled that? Was it a good strategy? The first thing I thought watching parenthood, well, for my first time, for my first episode, was parenthood is hard. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't envy any of these people. Cats don't speak or drink. Or I mean, I mean, you know, like I've never caught George with the brewskis. So but but I have to say, I this was an early hook for me, the newbie, feeling like that was such a loving way to talk to his grandson about what happened. Yeah, I thought there was no anger in it. And also that he kind of went straight, like cut straight to the heart as any adult male or any adult person could. Like you don't have to impress anyone. Like the first thing he said I'm not going to remember the word for it, but in certain tribal traditions in, in Africa, it's like putting someone who's done wrong in the middle of the circle and telling them what is good about, what they love about them and what's good about oh, them. That's beautiful. That's what it rang out to me as the first thing you say when you've done something wrong is you're a good kid. Yeah. That's powerful, I thought. I agree. He knows that Drew is a good kid. Mm-hmm. And he knows that Drew knows this was wrong, at which Drew even says, he says, I know that. I totally know that. Yeah. So, like, you don't have to rake him over the coals when he already clearly feels bad. And I felt like he appealed to the goodness in Drew rather than, like, punishing this other part of him that had a momentary lapse. And I felt like it was very respectful. Like, he respected him as a good kid who doesn't do this kind of stuff normally. It also made me think of my dad said that his father, you know, I think he had kind of a temper. He could snap about little things. But if you did something really bad, dad would call you into the room, sit you down, and he'd say, oh, Steve, you're such a good kid. Oh, wow. And my dad said, oh, when that happened, when this guy who could blow up was just calm and laying on the disappointment. It was so much worse. It kind of reminded me of that, just because he (laughs) said, you're such a good kid. But yeah, I thought it was a great way to handle it. And I wonder if it's easier for a grandfather. Mm. I I might call the people by their actor names sometimes. (laughs) You guys will translate for (laughs) me. (laughs) But you know, you see Lauren Graham like, you see that it triggers something else, something very different in her. Yeah. And maybe like not, she might not quite have the space to be that calm, like to be that measured 
in her reaction to it. And I thought I was thinking, man, I wonder if it's easier a generation removed to be a little more measured, a little calm. Yeah. Well, and also them just having such different experiences with alcohol. You know, I thought that was such a fascinating aspect of the show. Like for Zeke to be talking about how he did this with his own sons and now he's doing it with Drew, this like almost initiation, male bonding, you know, here's a beer. And for her to see it as something scary because of, you know, who she married, who Drew's father is. And I related to that because I remember, you know, my, my dad was an alcoholic before I was ever born. I mean, he was, as Alex says, you're always an alcoholic, but he was in recovery the whole time I knew him. And then he died when I was 16. But I always knew that alcohol could be this sort of scary thing. And then when I was 19 and 20, I dated an alcoholic. And so it was interesting. I was at age where like everyone around me was like drinking for fun and partying. And I was just never able to see alcohol as something casual. And so it felt like that was the sort of major conflict that happened with, with Zeke and Sarah, you know, just them approaching it so differently. But I did also want to say I completely agree with both of you that Zeke handled that beautifully. Like just, you know, disciplining with compassion, that's, you know, and and not shaming someone or humiliating them, just loving them. That's so powerful. Yeah. Well, let me play that scene between Sarah and Zeke. Did you give Drew a beer at Thanksgiving? Yeah. Yeah, and I gave one to Adam and Crosby at about the same age. Why? I really wish you hadn't done that, and I hope you won't do that again. Well, sweetheart, I don't know. I think it's a good idea to teach guys how to handle alcohol before they go out there and make idiots out of themselves. Maybe that was okay for Adam and Crosby, but they didn't have a father who was an alcoholic. Well, I don't know if Seth was an alcoholic. I know that he was a self-indulgent bum who couldn't get a job. Seth is an alcoholic. Seth is a drug addict. And you should have told me you found those guys in there drinking. Okay, okay now wait a minute here. I shut it down, honey. I handled it, so I really don't see what the problem is here. The problem is I chose an addict to be the father of my children. And I worry every day that they have that in them too. So please, let me handle this, okay? Okay. Thank you. So did you think Zeke was right or wrong not to tell Sarah about catching Drew drinking? Oh, you know, I also am struck in this scene, like, (laughs) I hear a father and a daughter saying to each other exactly how they feel. I was like, Oh, look at this museum. It's like I was in a museum of exotic animals and maybe a lot of families <laughs> talk like this, but you know, and I, I guess I had a, Melissa, I don't know if you feel this too, but uh, this twinge of sadness, like, Oh, I, well, I'll never get to be that kind of an adult with my dad. I don't, I don't know what that would, would have been in, in this lifetime anyway, but from the South, like I don't, I don't always want to prescribe it to the South because then people will be like, well, I'm from the Midwest or I'm from Long Island and we, but I'm like, 
that you can talk to your parents. Like you just say your feelings like that. And then they say something that calmly, that's also within <laughs> their boundary and like their right to say. So I was watching it like, like I, like it was a foreign language film or something. Um, that's but, a really good point because you know, we're, well, especially me, I'm always ragging on people's communication in this show and, and just not always ragging, but evaluating, like, was this good? Was this bad? Yeah. With, and kind of taking for granted that a lot of times your family are the hardest people to communicate with because there's all these, you know, we talk about like power dynamics, like with Sarah and Gordon, who was her boss, who she was kind of dating. Yeah. But there are dynamics in a family. I'm sure Sarah has immense respect for her father because he's her father and to go to your father and say, I disapprove of how you handled something. You're right. That is really not easy for probably most people to right. do. And they are just flat out communicating. Uh, yeah. And even for him to say, well, I disagree with yeah. what I guess I more to answer to the point. Your question is, I almost feel like Zeke wasn't wrong from his point of view, his POV. It's like, that's what guys do. I assess the problem. I know what it is. And I talk to him about it, which we, as we just decided, at least for the three of us, he handled so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm assuming up until this point, she hadn't been so forthcoming about their father. You know, I wonder, oh, would it have been different if he had known up front because because of I'm thinking, well, you know, he should have let her know because this is in, you know, the kid's genes, except he didn't know. Yeah. Or it seems like maybe on some level he knew, but he had just gone with his own interpretation of Sarah's ex-husband, you know, like, oh, I don't know if he's an alcoholic, he's a bum, you know, and, and I thought that was kind of fascinating. Oh, and it also points to, I think two very differing views of alcoholism or Mm -hmm. addiction Yeah, where some people think it is genetic or just a condition within you that you have to deal with. And then other people want to view it as a character flaw. If you were just made of stronger stuff, you would resist these urges. And I got the sense that that's what Zeke who knew Seth had abused drugs and alcohol but I don't think he thought it was something he was ailing from. I think it was, oh, well, Seth is a, a fuck up and that's just evidence of it. Mm-hmm. And I think Sarah is more of the view, no, he's not. He was struggling with this thing that, you know, she doesn't have to struggle with. She doesn't have any addiction issues. Thank goodness. Yeah. But he did. And now she worries, what did my kids get? Me or Seth? Something I thought was super interesting in this episode is how many people drank in an episode that dealt so much with alcoholism. Like Sarah's worried about her children, but it's in the same episode where we get a scene with her, you know, like drinking with Julia, with her sister. And then I couldn't help but notice, not that there's anything wrong with this, but I just thought it was such an interesting choice that at the dinner, not to skip too far ahead, but at the dinner with Alex, Christina and Adam were both having wine with dinner. And of course, they didn't know Alex was an alcoholic, but I'm like, what an interesting choice. Like your daughter's friend comes over for the first time and you're like drinking, you know, and and 
I, I didn't feel judgment, but I did feel sort of bewilderment because I, you know, we never had alcohol at our house growing up because of my dad and everything. And so anyway, I just yeah. thought, wow, the show seems to be presenting these different views of like who can drink, who can't, when is it socially acceptable? When is it not? So that was something I just um, really couldn't stop thinking about. Yeah, I guess too, I felt like Zeke had such a good point in terms of handling it. And I mean, in handling it with his grandson from the sharing the first beer Mm. that it's like, you can make this a forbidden thing. And then God only know, you know, God knows what like, yeah, like making it forbidden stops anyone from doing shit. It's like, (laughs) it can have counter effect. Or you say like, you sort of instill what is a healthy relationship with uh, alcohol and, and how it can be like a social engagement and uh, bonding. So I guess I was I was feeling like I really saw his side and what I thought was so beautiful, like I said, from the start in the scene is like, oh, I see both of these people's sides and they seem to both be communicating their sides <laughs> really well. And she asked for what she needed eventually, which is let me handle it. Yeah. And we often say those those are like our favorite conflicts when it really is so clear where each person's coming from. And and Zeke clearly just wasn't factoring in this component yeah. that was yeah. on Sarah's mind. And Sarah was perhaps projecting some of the trauma that she went through with her husband when maybe the situation doesn't warrant it. But right. you know, she she doesn't know that yet because her at least Drew hasn't been drinking a lot. So yeah. who knows where that's going to go. I was also really struck by Sarah, who's often so ballsy, even when she's masking insecurity. In this scene, she often seemed to have trouble even looking at her father. You know, she's looking down during a lot of what she's saying. And it gave me the impression that this particular topic really makes her feel embarrassed or ashamed or something. Mm. That it's something she she doesn't ever want to go near if she can help it. But she knows she can't avoid it. And I, it was really striking to see. And I thought a good a good acting choice to so subtly communicate that of like I'm I'm kind of just avert my eyes for a lot of this. To get personal for a moment, my mom is really uncomfortable with the fact that I drink a little. You know, like I don't drink much, but I have like a glass of wine most nights, and that makes my mom really uncomfortable. She wishes I wouldn't, and I, th- I think it's because of you know my dad. I, I, I know it is. But, you know, I, I try to tell her, I'm like, doesn't it seem like I can drink responsibly that I have one glass and that's it? And I was not, you know, and right. she, but but I think she just doesn't see it as as anything casual. And I don't know. I just I mentioned that because, yeah. Does that make you appreciate what she must have gone through any differently? Like, oh, if this scares her so much. It must have been really horrible. You know, it should, because <laughs> to be honest, my default is often like, I'm an adult, you know, which sounds <laughs> really adult. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'll, yeah, I'll be like, don't you Fair. trust me? God. Um, but no, I, I think you're totally right. That's that's really the way to, to look at it, that I should look at it. Maybe I maybe I will now um, think of it well, that no way. Well, no should. I just want you know, because <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. you're also not wrong. You're not abusing it. And there's now. <laughs> years of evidence <laughs> right, to that effect. Right. But it's a no, it's a good it's a good way to look at it because she did go through something that I can't imagine, you know? When, mm. And and my brother too cuz he's 11 years older and so um oh. that that was a part of his childhood, it wasn't a part of mine. 
Well, what did you both think of the talk that Sarah had with her kids about alcohol? <laughs> that was incredible. I don't know why I just like <laughs> thought her trying to get their attention, like with two teenagers, like clearly <laughs> so on their own agendas. But it was so funny. Lauren Graham is so good. Yeah. So good. I agree. You know, not to circle back and not answer your question, Caleb, but, <laughs> you know, Caleb and I worked with students who at NYU who from time to time do one-on-one work with a somatic experiencing therapist. Somatic experiencing is I could be a walking commercial for if you want to know anything about it. I don't know a lot, but like call me and I'll like point you to a professional because I think it's the most effective therapy a person can do. And it's so much about nervous system health. And so they had this coach, this professor who specialized in mind-body integration in performance. And the reason I say it is the way I've heard her describe the work is helping actors live, live in another person's nervous system. And so the more sort of clear, clear and, um, aware and conscious you are of yourself and the more integrated you are, the more set up, like the more well set up you are to inhabit another human being's nervous system, including their triggers, including their, uh, like when Meryl Streep blushes in, in the the Julia child, like as Julia (laughs) child and and people are like, you can't fake that you do. That's a, such a, a visceral human reaction. Anyway, I just thought that about Lauren Graham. Again, new, if you had said to me, she's a very ballsy character, I would go, really? It, because in this episode, I got to see someone really trying to negotiate something altogether that really sh- sent her off her center. She wasn't dating anymore. She came to see her sister. She's, you know, that clearly. And so I was seeing her alive in a, a nervous system that was a little bit like, overwhelmed, a little bit threatened. And so I was thinking of the somatic experiencing work watching her. I think the most effective actors are people who now, as I've come to describe it, can occupy another person's, not just the dramatic circumstance, but actually occupy the nervous system of another person. Wow. I love that. I guess that's high praise for Lauren Graham because <laughs> I, I see it when I watch Olivia Coleman, <laughs> Allison <laughs> Janney. There's just a handful of people that when I see them, I'm like, there's like pretending to be a person. And then there's this other thing. And I, so I was really struck by Lauren Graham in this episode for that reason. I feel like I should jump in because I didn't say this at the beginning. I met MK at NYU when we were both students, me studying music her studying singing and acting and then we have worked together a lot since then and she is a well she's a brilliant singer and actor (laughs) but she's now a brilliant director and choreographer as i'm sure you got just a taste of in what she just said but so she knows of what she speaks it's not just (laughs) i mean i guess it is just her opinion but it is a very professional skilled insightful opinion Oh, yeah, that is probably good context. But all of that, a lot of that, all that to say, (laughs) I felt like watching her even attempt to get her kids' attention, I I thought she was at least on the right track. Mm -hmm. I will say that much, you know? It it felt, (laughs) I was going to say sobering. Like, (laughs) you know, it felt like 
Oh, well, just threaded through the episode so nicely too. What is the right way? How is the right way? But again, it it wasn't sort of born out of shaming them. Mm -hmm. It was born out of this is something that might end up being beyond your control and to bring their awareness to it. I thought at least she was on the right track. (laughs) I liked how funny most of that scene was and light. You know, she's being serious, but, you know, the two kids are joking with each other. And I I wondered if some of that might have been ad-libbed because I know that's some things they do and it just seemed like they were playing off of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I, I love how it seemed like maybe what she said did sink in but not in a after school special way, you know, and and that must be so difficult to do because I feel like this was an important episode. I I thought every single storyline this episode had weight and was really something valuable to discuss and explore. And it never felt to me like it was overly sentimental or, or just, you know, cringy. And I really loved that little moment with Mae Whitman, who I think is just like the greatest actress that she was like, you know, I, I, I got it, you, you know, and, and she just kind of said enough to, to make it clear that like, I know I'm being light right now. I know I'm laughing. I don't really maybe feel like getting into a huge thing, but I, I got it. Message received. I thought that was really effectively done. Melissa, can I ask you a question? Sure. How did you find out about your father? I, I just wonder like how and who talked to you about that? You know, it's weird as I don't, remember. Like, I really don't remember when I found that out. I think I was pretty young. I don't think it was ever, maybe that's why I don't remember. I don't think it was ever like hidden from me. And I don't think it was like a big reveal. I think it was just kind of always a reality of our lives. Like (laughs) one of my, one of my favorite stories, I'll, I'll just say it very quickly. Um, my dad was always in the hospital. Just that's not the favorite part. That's awful. But he was always in the hospital. Um, and I remember my mom and a bunch of, you know, my dad's family, we all went to like the Red Lobster or something, you know, while my dad was in the hospital and we were all just trying to like eat some dinner and, and clear our minds and have a, have a nice meal. And my mom got the lemonade and the, the waiter was like, would you like our pink lemonade? And my mom said, oh yes, that sounds great. And that was like, code, I guess, for it had alcohol in it. But <laughs> but my mom didn't realize that. She just thought that sounded festive. So yeah. my, I saw my mom get like drunk for the first and maybe only time of my whole life. And it was funny because it was like this kind of delightful thing that really broke the tension and made the whole table like cry with laughter. And, (laughs) and I think I remember that being sort of juxtaposed with how like scary alcohol had always been described, you know, to me. And yeah, yeah, I don't know, but, but I knew what that was and I was quite young, but I understood this was alcohol. And I think that might mean something that I, I understood what alcohol was and what it did to people. But I think I'd only ever thought of it as doing bad things instead of making my mom laugh a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I agreed with you about the scene setting it in the car, I thought was a really smart choice because it did keep it from feeling very special episode. Mm -hmm. Cause like they can't have face to face really. They can't hug when the conversation's done. Mm -hmm. There's other business to attend to. Although I was distracted a little bit by the frightening stretches of time that Sarah went without looking at the road. <laughs> I thought that. I was like, <laughs> is she going to get in a car accident? Yeah. <laughs> and I also, <laughs> I'm sure that they were actually like 
usually I think in film and TV, when you see a car, it's actually being pulled by another vehicle. They're not literally driving. And so I thought like, okay, they're probably not in any real danger, but also <laughs> if she was actually driving, she probably wouldn't look away from the road that long. Cause she'd be actually driving. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was, and it reminded me of some previous episode, Melissa, where you said a conversation might have benefited from being set in a car. I actually think it might've been the pilot. It was her and Drew and they had a big tearful, like yes, when, when Drew right. went to run away to go live with his dad and they stopped at a gas station and it was oh. in the rain. And I was like, maybe that should have just been in the car. You deserve a father. You deserve a great father. Yeah, because we were like, a oh, nice scene, but it's a little corny. And she said, if they just did it while they were driving, then there's no big, powerful moment in the rain. Probably what happened is they heard me uh, and then went, so. they From time the traveled. Yeah. And then they reshot this scene. They fixed it. Yeah. No. Who, which kitty is in your lap? Oh. George. George loves Zoom. Oh. I know you guys uh, listening can't see this, but. <laughs> it's very crawling cute. to find the prime position <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. Well, this is a good segue to a story that I think George would like about <laughs> a little bird. And I first want to say this is a brief, brief clip, but I think Joel is so funny and he continues to make me laugh. Well, crap. <laughs> oh, that's dead. <laughs> that's dead well that's dead um, MK Joel is this character that it's like Caleb and I never realized was funny until this rewatch because it's so subtle so and in the background yeah and so. like so many other characters on the show are really huge personalities and so I think we just not until we were paying like such close attention where we like Joel is secretly a comic genius <laughs> and we did not ever notice. <laughs> oh yeah, I could see that. And then, you know, Sydney comes down and we learn that she has named this bird Amelia. And oh. so I looked it up, fun fact. Amelia <laughs> is Bonnie Bedelia's mother's name. And they were oh. they were very poor growing up and Amelia <laughs> worked as a maid cleaning houses. Why are you laughing? Because her name would be Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> <laughs> was it really no <laughs> I'm totally this up. I'm lying it's a total oh joke God. but I, w I had this joke in mind and then you want to talk about tangents this sent me off on two separate tangents okay one is well what was Bonnie Bedelia's childhood like first of all Bedelia is her middle name oh her last name was Culkin as we have said before she is Macaulay and Kieran and Rory Culkin's aunt, but she went by her middle name professionally. She did grow up relatively poor uh, in a cold water tenement flat in New York City. Shortly after she was born, her father's business took a dive and then her mother died when she was 14. Oh, oh my her God. father spent a year in the hospital with a series of intestinal operations. So there were four teenagers, uh, Bonnie and her sister and her two brothers living without a guardian. And she was a dancer as a child. She had a scholarship to George Balanchine's School of American Ballet, and she appeared in a few productions with the New York City Ballet, and she played oh. Clara in a televised production of Balanchine's Nutcracker, which was televised. Oh, I said that. 
but you can find <laughs> it on YouTube. And I, oh, I watched wow. it. I didn't see any of her dancing, but there was this little girl and it was Bonnie Bedelia. And I then the separate strand was about Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> it was a children's <laughs> book series begun in 1963 by Peggy Parrish. And I thought this was interesting because of MK. You're from South Carolina. Peggy Parrish was from Manning, South Carolina. Whoa. Where there is a statue of Amelia Bedelia today in honor of Peggy Parrish. And she was a USC grad, as were you. Whoa. And then she moved to New York, as did you. I mean, you know what? Go ahead, Melissa. (laughs) No, I was just going to say what's cracking me up about all this is Bonnie Bedelia was not even in this episode. <laughs> so does MK know, even know who you're so talking about? Oh, I know who Bonnie Bedelia is. <laughs> okay, and I okay. was like, Bonnie Bedelia's in this suite. I was like, then, waiting. <laughs> not this one. And then, well, I'm very glad that you liked those references then because I was like worried. Oh, no. But yeah, of course, you know, she. that's awesome. Well, you know, all these. Things. What I didn't know is that there's an Amelia Bedelia statue in my state. Yeah. And I looked it up. It looks like Manning is maybe like 90 minutes away from you. I think Manning is fairly close to Florence. Here's my tangent. Okay. (laughs) My tangent is that when the bird hit the glass, it reminded me of the opening to this movie, You Can Count on Me, uh, in the weirdest way. Which starred a Culkin. It did star a Culkin. (laughs) I think it was Rory when he was a little boy. Um, But Laura Linney, Mark Ruffalo, such a great movie. But anyway, the beginning of that movie is like Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo's parents when they were kids. And they're like driving. And the mom just says this really random comment about how, isn't it crazy that right when girls start to be self-conscious about their looks, that's exactly when they need braces. It was something like that. (laughs) And then they immediately get hit by a car and die. And it's, you're really like not expecting it because of that really like just meaningless comment, you know, that, but I never forgot that comment. I think I've only seen that movie once and I just, it never got it out of my head because I'm like, what a crazy last word, (laughs) you know, they're dead. And I was struck by that no pun intended, um, because Julia, you know, they're all just eating their oatmeal and Julia's just like, you know, oat, like porridge is what they call oatmeal in fairy tales. And then the bird just like smack. And and I thought that feels so realistic to me. Just this incredibly small moment, yeah, you know, so mundane. Well, off of the tangents, back to the actual story. I think this might be. I, well, no, this is my favorite storyline of the episode. Because of just the huge issues they tackle in such a mundane sort of domestic way. And Joel and Julia debating how to tell Sydney what has happened to Amelia. What should we say? I was thinking something along the lines of, um, the bird is dead. You like that? Yeah, well, that's a little harsh. Well, what else can we say? I mean, it's nature. It is harsh. Well, does she need to know at age six that nature's harsh? If Sid lived on a farm, she'd have seen death a hundred times by now. Let's move to a farm. It's just, she's so innocent and happy, and she doesn't understand. It's just... Who wants to bring that little surprise to the party? Well, if we bring up heaven, it'll be a lot less scary. No. I know you and I are probably not going, but... Funny. What exactly are you going to tell her about heaven? Normal stuff. You mean the made-up stuff? Yeah, the made-up stuff. 
I don't want to lie to her. You don't know that it's lying. You don't know. Well, exactly. Just... You don't know. That's the point. That's what faith is. You don't know. So I, oh. I genuinely feel like I wouldn't know what I would do. I mean, I think you would want to avoid scaring your child with concepts that are hard for them to understand. I mean, they're they're really hard for like brilliant, mature adults to <laughs> grapple with. Yeah. But, but I also sympathize with Joel that you wouldn't want to tell them something that you don't personally believe to be true. Ugh. What would you guys do? Well, I know my sister, I mean, my sister and brother-in-law are very religious and they've always talked to my nephews. I mean, I say nephews because they're older than my niece, Katie, not to like ignore her existence, but um, <laughs> they've always talked to my nephews and niece about death because my father passed away the year to the day before Jack was born. And so they've always talked to them and taught them about their granddaddy, Jack. It's a small sidebar. My uncle, Steve, who is my uncle, he looks a lot like my dad, my dad's youngest brother. Apparently my whole family, they got together over Christmas with my uncle, Steve, and my sister took the kids. And apparently my nephew, Andrew said, I thought you told me granddaddy Jack was in heaven. Like oh, he became wow. really, really confused. Not he certainly wasn't confused, but then they had explained to him again that that was Uncle Steve, that was Granddaddy Jack's brother, and that's why they looked alike. And wow, you know, so they've been having conversations with them. I because I immediately thought about them. They're my closest relationship to kids. I just I know they they believe so firmly in heaven that they are, they're essentially explaining to them death in the context of the afterlife, which they fully believe. And it really made me think how much of a comfort, how much of a comfort (laughs) the idea of heaven is, regardless of your age. When you told me about this episode, initially asking me to do this, this storyline reminds me so much of my own father when he was dying. And he never, he was so protective of us knowing he was dying, but he was absolutely dying. And he would stare up in the corner of the room at something. I mean, as sure as I was there, it was like at something. And if we, any of me or my sisters asked him, he'd say he was staring at Santa Claus. Looking at Santa, he's such a jolly old chap. That's what he would say. He's such a jolly old chap. Wow. And only after he died, my mom said, you know, when I asked him that, he said he was staring at Jesus. Mm. And he, he said, you know, I'm dying, Paula. And so her conversation with him, I don't know. It just always, I've always remembered that story and watching this brought that up for me. This idea that my dad was trying to protect us up until the very end, even though he too is someone who I think like, was such a full believer in afterlife. And even to tell my mom, he was staring at, he was seeing Jesus, you know, for whatever miracle that was, whether it was easing his pain or whatever function it was, he would tell us Santa, like he would, I don't think he would have ever said to any of the three of us, well, you know, I'm dying. I'm just looking at Jesus or heaven or whatever he might've said. Wow. He was protecting us, I think from death up until the moment he died. So I couldn't help but think of that watching these two parents struggle with like, in essence, what reminded me of my dad wanting to protect 
your kid from knowing that there's a finite amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so generous of him because to know that he told your mom the truth, I think shows that it's not, he wasn't in denial at all about what was happening, but that he would tell you something different. I think speaks, like you said, of how protective he was, how that was his like paramount imperative was keep being a good dad until the very end. I not to give him a plug on your podcast. That's okay. But plug away. He was top of the line in terms of dads. I don't know what I would do, but I would be inclined. I think this episode brings it up in other ways later too. I would be inclined towards the truth. I would be inclined towards saying we don't really know, but here's what some people believe. Because in protecting, this is a little different, certainly than I think what my dad was doing at the time. But you, th- there's a certain level to which I think you have this instinct, I would think. And I feel it about George. He's been near death a couple of times. It's like I would protect him at all costs. And that's a high cost. of vet bills are a high cost sometimes. <laughs> uh, it's like at all costs, you would protect your kid. And yet, who are you really protecting by not wanting to tell? Like when she's sitting on the couch and saying, this is really sad. You know, later when when their kids like, oh, this is a very sad thing. Instead of like sort of building resilience around what it means to to, to feel that sad, we make up something. Is it really protecting kids at this point or is it protecting me from having to watch my kid be sad? (sighs) I don't know. That's conundrum. It's good question. Basically circling back to, I didn't envy them. (laughs) I just, (laughs) just pet my cat. (laughs) <laughs> for having the not having the cognitive ability to ask or the speech <laughs> to ask me about death. See what struck me about that storyline and and what you just said, MK, is like for people who are religious, they don't probably have to even question it because right. to them the truth is a comfort. I am not religious, and so. I don't believe in an afterlife. I think you die. I think that's it. That's scary to me. I can't linger on it for too long. And I hope to have some sort of Zen approach to that as I get older. (laughs) Um, And I might be wrong. I'm not uh, cocky about it. You know, when, when Julia and Joel said, we don't know, I thought, well, that's really where I am. We don't know. But I... I like what you said about maybe telling her, you know, telling Sydney, this is what some people believe. I feel like that might be, if I were able to be in the presence of mind to weigh all my options, I think that's the option I would like the best because it offers a little bit of hope. And I think it's good to tell kids about different belief systems and let them, you know, expose them at appropriate ages, let them kind of figure out what they believe. You know, my, my parents told me about heaven, but they were religious. So they were in their mind telling me their truth. So there, there are also some really beautiful belief systems that don't involve God whatsoever in the formal, in the formal, like kind of umbrella, like Christian, mm-hmm. you know, dominant theological sense that just believe, you know, energy doesn't disappear. Right. And a lot of beautiful philosophies about sort of 
because like going back into nature and sort of being everywhere, like in the wind and outside in the grass and Walt Whitman. Yeah. If, yeah. If, you know, if, if you want me again, look for me under your boot yes. soles. Yeah. So I love that. So I feel like it could, I mean, maybe that's heavy for six years old, but <laughs> you know, it, I think another thing it brought up for me is don't think you know what a kid can handle and can't handle. Mm. And kids are so much more resilient. And like we have the mechanisms. It's like if, if Sydney couldn't handle it, she wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But you got to give her a shot because yeah. how else are you going to even build up her ability to be resilient in the face of overwhelming joy or sadness or grief or, or anything? Wow. Yeah. I think I ultimately came down kind of where it sounds like both of you came down. I, I was raised very religious, but now don't believe in an afterlife. And I'm sort of the same as Melissa. I wouldn't say, you know, you can't really prove a negative really <laughs> anywhere. So I wouldn't say like, I know there is no afterlife. No, I don't know. But when I use my best judgment, looking at all the information I have, I kind of come down with, well, I think probably consciousness ceases and then we're just done. But I remember this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but like MK, you mentioned Santa Claus. I get kind of irrationally upset at telling kids about Santa. I think it's stupid. <laughs> and, um, and honestly, not to spoil too much, but it was largely inspired by a future parenthood episode, which is about kids believing in Santa. And I remember thinking, this is so stupid. Why are we <laughs> bending over backwards to make kids believe in something that we know isn't true? Ooh. And I remember thinking at the time, to me, even though I don't believe in an afterlife or God, that it's different from that. Because parents who are telling their children about that, they at least believe it. Mm -hmm. sincerely. So I think yeah. that is, is fine, but it's an important Santa, distinction. Santa, you don't, no one really thinks that Santa is real. And I remember putting that on Facebook and a friend was defending the concept. I mean, I don't think it's irresponsible to talk about Santa as a mythological figure, as a story. If it's fun, sure, fine. But I don't understand why anyone would ever go to any lengths whatsoever to deceive their kids into thinking it's real. I didn't grow up with Santa and I don't feel like Christmas was any less magical than the kids who were told that story. I wasn't deprived of anything. And I felt straight up betrayed when I found out. <laughs> so there's that. No. <laughs> but so I put this on Facebook griping about why any parent would talk about Santa and a friend of mine from elementary school all the way through high school, she commented well, it can be helpful because exposing children to fantasy can sometimes help them understand concepts that they may have a harder time dealing with sort of in the abstract. And I thought, that's stupid. What concept is Santa helping anyone deal with? But in this case, in this storyline, I actually felt like what she said was really wise. And even though I personally don't really believe in heaven, it kind of made sense to me and I thought it wasn't a bad way to handle it because I think heaven might really help Sydney or anyone just sort of grapple with the issue of mortality that is so hard to think about. And if heaven can help you 
either by providing some comfort or just help you start that thinking in your own mind, then I I almost don't think it matters whether or not it's literally true. Mm. And so I think the only thing I might have changed about what Julia did, as you both said, just frame it as this is what some people believe rather than here's what it is. If that's not what you believe, I think if that is what you believe, go right ahead and say it. Yeah. I kept thinking that Joel might be upset with Julia, you know, because the example of the deceased person that they had to go on was Joel's mother. When you die, that's it. Forever? Yeah. Well, that's sad. It is, it is sad, Bug. It is sad. So everything dies? Yeah, pretty much, hon. But, you know, um, that's kind of the, the beauty of the world, you know? It's, it's, not, it's not permanent. Are you and Daddy going to die? Am I going to die? Not for a really, really long time. Yeah. Like a hundred years. I don't want you to die. I would miss you. Well, you don't have to because we'll see each other in heaven. Heaven is a beautiful place. And that's where you go when you die. It's peaceful there. And it's happy. And everyone that you love, everyone that you miss, is there waiting for you. You know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but um, when you were really little, Daddy's mom died. And she's there. And you get to see her when you go in a hundred years. Okay, that sounds good. Will Amelia be there? Yep. Absolutely. She's probably there already with your grandma. The, the moments that I noticed Joel's expression were yeah. when, when she mentioned heaven, but also when she was like in a hundred years, like even when she said we'll die, but not for a really long time, a hundred years, he kind of had this subtle wince, like we already know that's not true. You know, how old are yeah. we now? It's not, we're not going to live another hundred years. So there's the first lie. Or how old did his mom live to be if she's right. already, I mean, this right. is new information to us, the viewer too. We didn't know his mom was dead. True. In fact, in, you know, one earlier episode, we had uh, Joel's parents, like gra- grandma and grandpa, like written down Graham, on a, yeah, yeah. yeah. So need to update that phone. No, <laughs> no. but uh, yeah, I, so I thought it was just interesting, the two different ways that those parents wanted to deal with it. And I kind of thought, well, Julia is the more forceful person and personality. She even admits that when she's, you know, hanging out with Sarah later, you know, she's like, I hate that I'm controlling, but what are you going to do? And I thought, well, Joel handles that really beautifully. He doesn't get mad, but I think it would have bothered me a lot that we had decided not to say something. And then she did. And then, you know, for her to like really fudge how long it would be. I I thought he played that so beautifully because I was like, oh my God, I feel the betrayal. Like I feel the betrayal (laughs) experiencing. 
I not and not faulting her at all, but you watched it get too hard. I think for her, like too hard for her to handle ultimately to see her child in pain. It's like, well, how can you fault a parent for that? You know, that's exactly what you said earlier, though, is like, is it because Sydney was struggling or is it because Julia was struggling? And right. I think you're right. In that case, it, it really did seem like it was just too hard for Julia. It did. In this scene, I thought I thought so, too. I, I'm who's Caleb. I'm feeling like this is some a quote from something you've told me about. It's more likely that we invented God than God invented us. Oh, I, I heard it from Julia Sweeney's show. Right. Letting Go of God, which I love. And I am actually going to play a clip from it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded it reminded me a lot of that. And and that I, I just, I'm so curious how, like how far we've gotten as a culture from our ability to let death be a part of life. Right. And that we shielded. I thought, oh my God, I guess I was, how old was I when my first great grandparent died? And how was it explained to me? And I was really shielded from it as if like, it's something scary. It's something that even subconsciously, I wonder, I think it's not so good or I'm just thinking this off the top of my head now, like, wonder if it's so good for us. I thought the way they let six-year-olds in other cultures handle machetes, if they need to go out and cut, you know, cut something from the field, like it's a six-year-old can handle a machete if they understand it mm-hmm. and they understand it as a tool and what it's used for, just like they can understand and grapple with death if they see it, if we don't sort of hide it as something that happens either by some extreme, like horrible, unique situation or else to really old people. Mm -hmm. Because then what happens when you're in a pandemic and you can't tell people goodbye and, you know, it's like we've built up none of the reserves to emotional reserves to help ourselves handle it or our kids. That's beautifully put. Beautifully put. I just am so careful to not sound cocky. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you sound say, cocky at all. And say enough like if I had kids, I cannot imagine. I don't, I'm so in awe of, well, like my brother and sister, my sister and brother-in-law started telling my nephews and niece about Santa by saying they're Santa and you, and you get gifts from Santa, but there is a secret of Santa. There's a special secret of Santa that you will learn. And so when Jack was finally old enough, he goes, I know the secret of Santa. Oh, wow. And my sister asked Jack how he figured it out. And he goes, well, when you're playing with tea and you say, here's some milk, (laughs) there's not really milk in there. Oh, wow. I actually think that's brilliant. That is brilliant. And then the reveal of the truth isn't a betrayal or a shock at all it's kind of like an achievement yeah right and That's, they I love that it. they couch it I I really think in many regards I think the world of them as parents we have some different beliefs in terms of uh different religious beliefs but in terms of their parenting I speak the world of them because I think they're very loving and I think especially like the Santa thing is a good example when it does come up what the secret is, it's like, here's why we do this. Mm. In their opinion, the gift giving is similar to God and Jesus, mm. the gift of the baby Jesus. And so that's how they talk about it in their family. Wow. But it was intentional. I think that's what I like so much about it. They set out with an intention of 
we're not, how can, I think Caleb, like you said, they knew as parents, like, we're going to like spend the first six years of their lives just blatantly lying. Right, right. Bad foot to start on, bad foot. (laughs) What made me think of, you know, when we referenced this one woman show, Letting Go of God by Julia Sweeney of Saturday Night Live fame, what made me think of it was this tiny little last scene with Joel. Well, honey, I wish my mom was here to see how great she's turning out. Yeah, I know. And I... I like thinking about her in heaven with that stupid bird. (laughs) I kind of hate you for that. Oh, I love you. Come here. And it seems like it really took him a lot to admit that he, this guy who spent the whole episode saying there is no heaven, we shouldn't tell Sydney there is a heaven, it's made up, for him to say that he liked thinking about his mom in heaven. Yeah. But it made me think of this last line, a, a line very late in Letting Go of God, where Julia, she has a daughter named Mulan, their cat Rita has died. And Julia's father has just died. And Mulan looked up at me and said, are Grandpa and Rita together? And I said, no, they died. But it's nice to think about them together, isn't it? And she said, well, I think they are together. And I said, well, what do you imagine they're doing? And she said, Rita's sitting on Grandpa's lap and she's purring. And I said, isn't that nice to think that? You see, people do live on after they die, inside of us, just thinking about them. And she said, what I think about is in my head. And I said, yes, that's your brain. Anytime you want, you just think and think and think about whatever you want. And it just made me think when Joel said, I like thinking about her in heaven. I thought of Julia Sweeney saying, isn't it nice to think that? And I thought, go ahead and think it. You can think whatever you want. Your brain is your own private space and if it makes you feel better about your mom not being there physically literally to see Sydney growing up think about her in heaven doesn't hurt anything and I Uh. think it's something at least in my own beliefs that I you know when when I was kind of reformulating my own spiritual beliefs you do I think in a way sort of overcorrect for a while because you think I was being told something was literally true. And I think it isn't literally true. Mm. And then after the dust kind of settles from that revelation, at least for me, then I can appreciate, well, the concept of heaven isn't bad. Even if I don't, if I personally don't think it is to the letter, literally true, that doesn't mean there's not maybe something of value in it and that there might not be great comfort in it. And who cares if the comfort is literally true or not? You can think whatever you want. You know, when my dad died and I was so young, a junior in high school, I remember thinking, well, now I know heaven is real. You know, that was like 22 years ago. But I thought, now I know heaven is real because there's no possible way that my dad just stopped existing. That's just not even possible. And that was the way my brain worked then. It was too unbearable to think that life just ended. And, you know, as I've gotten older and I've stopped being religious, um, 
I don't know. I just, I don't, I, it's weird. I almost don't even connect them anymore. You know, it's like I had to believe in heaven to get me through that really hard time. And now, I mean, of course I miss my dad and I wish he were here, but I've, I've like made peace with it in a way. And I think if I ever am going to get Zen about my own death someday, um, processing his over, you know, decades, yeah, that, that it kind of helps me come to terms with, with that, you know, and, and he does live on, I mean, most of my poems that I write are about him and I think about him all the time. And so I don't know. The brain is amazing. I mean, I think it really does. It does have, I mean, first of all, all the thing that separates us from all the other animals is this cognitive ability to go, oh, something abstract, a concept is real. Like we agree on money, for example. This isn't, mm. it's a real thing. We just tell a story that these little green things equal this much thing. But that's ultimately an abstract concept that we've ag huh. agreed on. And I think our, our mind, I, yeah, I do think it, it's there to, to soften the blow. I think our brain, our brain just has the ability to protect us from things that are too hard for us in any given moment. I, that really resonates with me, Melissa. I was the same way about my dad. Yeah. When he was dead, he felt gone to me. And I think in a weird way, that was actually protecting me from his death. The idea of, oh, he saw the light he was looking, I found out later, you know, yeah. staring up at Jesus. And if he saw the light, he was a very faithful man. So he like headed off. And then my dad wasn't here anymore. But I think in a weird way for me, my processing was when I finally, it, I almost had the inverted reaction. It was like, I finally started to feel my dad in ways and acknowledge his death by maybe acknowledging that that there was some piece of, I don't really know how to describe it now because <laughs> I don't know if it's anything cognitive or like more something in my heart, but I think there was something that I like to separate myself and go, oh, good thing for that, like heaven and Jesus, my dad just like went and that's why I don't feel him anymore. Wow. But in a weird way, I think that was my protective layer of when I was finally able to deal with his death somehow was like feeling his presence around me or, or in me, because if I didn't do that, then he wasn't really dead. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, wasn't really gone somehow, but it's hard to lose a parent. I'm yeah. saying this for Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is nice to know something about one of the in-laws families. We still don't have a lot of information about, we know Jasmine has a mom who we've met. We've never met any of Christina's family, never met any of Joel's family. And at oh. least now we know, oh, well, we're not going to meet Joel's mom. I also, before we get off this, I want to just commend all three actors in that scene oh. where they talked to Sydney, especially I thought Savannah Page Ray, who My plays God. Sydney. <laughs> She's so like poised beyond her years. Mm -hmm. And yet, she always sounds authentically like a kid. It's not like, oh, they've somehow taught this six-year-old to talk like a 20-year-old. Because <laughs> sometimes you'll see performances like that and it you just go, oh, well, that's a, that's a really talented monkey that they've trained right. to just <laughs> say the words. But, you know, when she says things like, okay, that sounds good. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, that's what she a six-year-old would say. Yeah. And then, and just that, that scene was so compelling because it's like the whole central conflict of life in this <sighs> one scene, which exactly. she says, I don't want you to die. I miss you. It's like, ugh, were truer words ever spoken? Yeah. yeah. And that, but it's, she still sounds like a kid, yeah. even when she's articulating these huge ideas. I just, I just marvel at it. I'm like, how do kids that age know how to do that? I think it has to do with their imagination, actually. Oh. And the ability to inhabit the nervous system. I don't think, you know, (laughs) they they can kind of imagine. See, that's why you're the director. I, I was thinking it sounded like our mentor at NYU. I sounded like him talking. He has a bit of, in a book that he wrote about dramatic circumstances. And he, I think he leads it off with a story about oh, yeah. kids' imaginations and hmm. how rich they are. How they just believe that there is milk in the teacup. Well, yeah. Even though they know there's not really milk in this teacup. There's not really milk in this teacup. Wow. We just say there is. So smart. Well, these two storylines we've discussed so far, Drew with the drinking and Julia with the Sydney and the bird, they kind of dovetail in this girl's night, Mm -hmm. which Sarah asks for after uh, making a New Year's resolution. I made a New Year's resolution, one I can really keep. Cool. I have decided I am never going to date anyone ever again. Good, right? Because... I want to have fun this year, and my relationships are not fun. Ergo, to wit, don't have any. I'm using a little legal jargon there mm-hmm. for your comfort. I noticed that. I'm going to do fun things. I'm going to go to museums and, uh, you know, read more. I'm going to have a girl's night out with my sister. <laughs> I kind of wish she would stop dating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, and this is by far your most interesting episode all season. <laughs> it, just, oh. it doesn't revolve around some boyfriend that uh and i like some of the people she dates mk i will tell you that but this season she had a real like just like relationship that was ick and so anyway Uh. we're glad we're glad the ick is gone (laughs) yeah and i feel bad i still i for the character's sake as if she were a real person i want her (laughs) to be happy and i want that happiness to include romantic love because i think she actually does want it despite Mm. what this new year's resolution is But as a character and as a viewer, I am simply less interested in her romantic storylines than I am in her stories as a mom, as a sister, as a person trying to sort of turn her life around. I find all of those things more compelling than, does he like me or not? (laughs) Okay, that's not why I tune into this show called Parenthood. <laughs> in their ultimate girls' night, I thought there were some interesting confessions. I don't know. The real kind of bummer is that I keep thinking that I am pregnant, and then I I start to get all sentimental, and I think that there's actually there's a baby inside of me, and it's kind of breaks my heart every time there's not. So anyway, when did it get so hard to get pregnant? I wasn't really intending it either time, so. Right. See, that's all I need to do. Not want to get pregnant. Dad gave Drew a beer the other day, and I realized I have to tell them what the real story is. That their father could be missing for days at a time, and 
He wasn't on tour, like I said, you know. I just don't know when to tell them how bad it actually was. I don't want them to be afraid, you know? Yeah. How much truth is too much truth. And I liked that, you know, we knew early on in the season that Julia wanted to have a second child. And then we, we went several episodes not really hearing more about it. And so I was just glad that they revisited mm-hmm. and acknowledged she's having trouble. That's the issue. And then also I thought it was new information that Sarah's kids didn't know the full extent of their dad's issues. I think from things they'd said earlier, they certainly knew that he had a drug and alcohol problem. But now she's revealing that she has shielded them from a lot of stuff. And then her telling Julia this also makes me think she's the only kid that didn't stay in town where they were all raised. She was off living on her own. She may not have told any of her family how bad it really was. And that, to me, just totally tracks with everything we know about her and how insecure she is feeling like a failure compared to everyone else in her family. I thought, well, if you had this big secret that even once it was out, you didn't reveal the whole extent of it. Yeah. Yeah, you really might feel like a loser all the time. I loved this little scene for many reasons. It was nice to just see them talking with each other like that. But I think one of my favorite reasons I liked it was it just didn't feel like part of a storyline. You know, it it it's hard to categorize. When I was typing up my notes, I'm like, what is this? This is kind of an aside. It's different from what's going on in each of their lives. They're coming together. They're talking about their lives. It felt more like real life to me. You know, it it felt like, yeah, in real life, you don't just stay in your own house with your storyline until your storyline is over. You will interact with other people and and they will get all blended together. And I I don't know. I I really loved how real that felt and just kind of sweet. I also loved that it was sort of where Sarah and Zeke made up. And again, it was so quiet. You know, he just kind of mouthed to her, like, are we okay? And and she didn't even answer. She just like, it was obvious that they were. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. And and it was just lovely to see them interact that way. I don't know the age difference between the two sisters, but, you know, I have my youngest sister, JC, who as much as I've tried otherwise to convince otherwise, has always thought I was the coolest person hmm. in the, the world. And I thought even at, at her office, when she brings her all the stuff and Julia says, says, you know, oh, this is kind of like my 13 year old self, like fantasy coming true. And uh, that made me think about my sister JC so much who you know now works for ESPN she to me is like you know she's really insightful and self-aware and I think she is such a cool together person that I frequently think I wonder what she looks up to I, I, I loved watching these two sisters well, and like Sarah says in that scene, she's like, now I think you're cool and I really need a friend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I related to that. Also, Melissa, you mentioning Zeke in that scene reminds me of something I was going to bring up earlier when he said he gave Adam and Crosby beers. Mm. Did either of you wonder, like, why didn't you give Sarah and Julia beers? You know, uh-huh. I did. I didn't. But now that you say that, he should have. You know, it's it's. Yeah. You give Amber yeah. a beer. And the thing is, I think it is kind of a nice gesture. And I, I I, sort of get that there might be some male bonding element to it, especially for Drew, who doesn't have a father really present in a lot of his life. But I did wonder, like, oh, it's just so, so... Traditional, gendered, yeah. yeah. 
Well, yeah. and now I'm wondering if maybe that's a little bit of why he's drinking with his daughters in the same episode, or maybe it's a happy mm. coincidence. I'm not sure. But he does bond with them in the same episode where he says that he you know, gave, yeah. gave the, his son's beers. And so kind of, kind of sweet that they're all toasting together and, you know, and the cute things they say, like, let's take dad out. Let's get, take him dancing. <laughs> I thought that was precious. <laughs> and it was this like lovely moment where alcohol wasn't something terrifying. Like Sarah had, you know, been yeah. all freaked out earlier. And yeah, it was, it was just beautiful. Well, let's go over to probably this, you said all the storylines in this episode have weight, but probably the least weighty one is Crosby and Jabbar with his messy room. <laughs> my, my first observation was that little copycat game. Oh my God. So between cute. Crosby and Jabbar was so cute. I could die. The, oh God, the fruit loops. And, <gasps> and that's something I really wonder is, was that written into the script or was that something that like as the director was setting the scene, did he think, oh, this will be a nice little touch to start this scene with. Because it, it has no bearing on anything. It's just adorable. <laughs> Although I suppose it could illustrate that Crosby is the fun parent. I was about to say that. Like, I think that it shows how playful they are together. And that yeah. even something as mundane as breakfast is like a game. And And yeah, he just really does get to be the fun parent all the time. I thought Crosby's first little man talk with Jabbar was not very successful. <laughs> you should clean the room because you got to keep your woman happy. And, yeah. um, and it was also kind of funny to watch it after earlier in the episode, seeing how Zeke handled Drew. I felt like, oh, Crosby's trying to imitate what he must have remembered from how his own dad handled him. But Zeke is like clearly a seasoned pro. <laughs> yeah. And Crosby, because I noticed they both said, hey, look at me. But Zeke handled it so well and Crosby was kind of missing the point. <laughs> and then cleaned the room for him. You know, quick aside, I'll say this. The way that you present something matters so much as far as like motivation or like why a person should do that. And I feel like, at the end of the episode, Crosby, you know, says that, like, I, I can't just let you think people are going to clean up after you your whole life. That is such a better... Do damage control. Right. <laughs> that is such a better thing to say, a better reason than we got to keep our women happy. Um, yeah. but, but like, right. quick aside, my, my mom tried to teach me to cook um, by telling me that someday I would need to make my husband meals. And so I really um, was defiant about cooking. Like I, I just tuned out when she tried to teach me because like even from a very young age, I found that gross. And yeah. it's interesting. And I hate to blame her for me not learning to cook because I at some point should have learned to cook and I really never did. And ironically, I married a man who is an excellent cook and he just cooks all of our meals. So I really never learned. Um, but I do. Joke's on you, mom. <laughs> <That's>, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love you, mom. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I do sometimes think if it had been presented to me in a way that was like 
cooking is such a valuable skill for every independent adult. Like we have to be able to cook for ourselves. And then someday if we have a family, we can be one of the people who provides for our family that way. We don't have to be the only one because we're the woman, you know, but like the way that these things are presented to us, not that I even think that was a big moment. I didn't write a note about it or anything, but you saying that about Jabbar, it just clicked something with me that perhaps that was not great motivation. Like, you know, perhaps Jabbar's thinking, well, my mom's always happy with me. Like, I don't have to clean my room to make her happy. Right. <laughs> you know, like she, she's going to love me whether I clean my room or not. Maybe she'll be a little miffed. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, we have to like think. Like he knew care- it wasn't the truth. Yeah. Inherently. Yes. yes. I wonder. I think I think so, because I think you're right. Kids, kids know the truth. And, you know, when when parents or teachers will provide an, a reason of like, because I said so, you know, it really doesn't bother me. Like when my students ask me, why do I need to know this? You know, unless they're saying it all rude, I guess. But if they're genuinely okay. asking, I, I think curiosity is important. And I think we shouldn't want to waste people's time. And I think in order to get Jabbar to clean his room, again, not a parent, but like I'm thinking, you have to give him some sort of reason that he can hang his hat on. Like this is, and it can't, it can't be a lie. And obviously you can't do it for him. Because <laughs> then he'll never do it. <laughs> well, Jasmine states her reasons for why he needs to learn in this scene with Crosby. That is totally not cool. It's not cool. I did not mean to do it. It just happened, okay? It was the easiest thing to do in the moment. Easy is not good parenting, and easy is lazy, and you're teaching him bad habits. Oh, I'm a lazy bad parent. I didn't because say I you're a lazy bad parent. A, a I dirty said that... room for a six-year-old is a big deal? This I has think nothing, it's stupid. This has nothing to do with a clean room or even him. It's you. You won't discipline. You always want to be liked and be the good guy and leaving me with the dirty work. That's not fair. You're not his friend. You're his father. I thought she was totally right. Yes. She I, I do wish we had seen a few more examples throughout the series of what she's talking about because Crosby shirking discipline and her having to do it totally feels a hundred percent in line with what we know about him. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like we've ever really seen it mm-hmm. until this episode. And so I did think just a little bit, her level of anger in this scene felt sudden. I was like, wow, you're really mad about this suddenly. It's only 20 minutes ago that you asked him to do this. I mean, 20 minutes in the runtime of the episode. (laughs) But I totally get that, not personally, but I understand that resentment around being forced to be the responsible parent while your partner just gets to be the fun parent. That would be really hard because she's she is so responsible that she's not going to not discipline him in order to have Jabbar like her and have just as much fun as he does with Crosby but then she's just always going to be bad cop and Crosby's always going to be good cop like she says that's not fair well and and the very first scene of that episode right after the little mimicry you know the little copycat scene was you know, kind of leading up to that, I could see where she was already this like annoyed with Crosby because of the way he was like, well, if your mom says you got to do it, you better do it. And she's like, that's not backing me up, you know, right. like, like acting like the only reason it matters is because, you know, got to placate mom. And so I feel like this was an episode of Crosby learning the importance of actually disciplining and not just having the mom be like the scapegoat or something, you know, like, like not sort of halfway disciplining, you know, and, and, and being like, well, here's the reason why, like, I don't know, using Jasmine as like a, a go around. 
And it's funny in the larger context of the series and of Crosby's story, it's it's him continually stepping up to new levels of being a dad, not half-assing it, manning right. up. But up to now, because he's been sort of the secondary parent, mm-hmm. he hasn't had to discipline because he just true. doesn't spend enough time. He's sort of been the special friend of Crosby and Jasmine's the full-time parent. Now that they're living together and they're engaged, Crosby has to do really do it full time. And so this is an element he hasn't had to deal with yet, which is sometimes your kid's going to be mad at you and upset that you're making them do something, but you have to do it. You don't get to just always be the fun guy who's there on the weekends and science centers and pizza. (laughs) Yeah. This is also, I think the first time we ever see Jabbar be anything but a little angel. Listen, Jabbar, you have to clean your room right now or we're not going to the zoo. I'm not going to do it. Hey, what? Don't. Okay. Then we're, we're not going to the zoo. That's not fair. Yes, it is fair. What's not fair is me letting you just go through life thinking that someone's going to do everything you need doing, okay? That would make me a crappy dad. Fine, I'll clean it. Look at I'm cleaning. No, buddy, it's too late. It's too late. Please, Daddy, please. I really want to go. No, I I was very clear. Please, okay? look, I'm cleaning. See? No, buddy, I said Clean now it. we're not going, okay? You're meaning. Okay, stop throwing your stuff. I hate you. No, me is worse. I hate you. You're me is dad of world. You're meaning. I found it kind of refreshing. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jabbar, was, he's always, he's just like, He's never like even Sydney, who's up to now been pretty good. Like in the Thanksgiving episode, we saw her whine and start to maybe throw a little bit of a tantrum about wanting a snack before the meal. But Jabbar never, nothing. He's just nothing. always He's perfect. Been, yes. Wow. It's like even good five, six year olds, they're not good all the time. No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of refreshing too. And and just so realistic. I'm like, this is exactly how this would go down, you know? And and I thought it was great of Crosby not to back down. I'm like, he has really good instincts, I think. You know, he is learning so much of this kind of off, you know, on the fly. And, and, you know, he hasn't done it for years and years. And he instinctively knew, I can't say we're not going to the zoo. And then he starts to clean up. I can't go back on that. Then I've lost all credibility. He knew that, you know, I think that's kind of incredible. Melissa, do you ever imagine me watching the episode when you're watching the episode? (laughs) No, that's weird. But now maybe I will start because I think yeah. I, har- I hardly ever do. But I thought of you at the beginning of this scene. I didn't pull it. But when Crosby's walking down the hall and he says, hey, Jabbar, I just got a phone call from a walrus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I bet Melissa laughed at that. I did. <laughs> I mean, I laughed at it, too, but I was. It was was enhanced by my imagining you (laughs) laughing at it. I love that. Yeah, I was like, God, that's cute. And it's even more heartbreaking (laughs) that like that scene was off to such a cute, hopeful start. Yeah, and that (laughs) walrus got stood up. Yeah. Because Jabbar wouldn't clean his room. Okay, well, another, (laughs) this is the last storyline. And another kid who I really liked in this episode, I don't always love Max, but... I loved Max in this episode. And right away, this is inconsequential. I just pulled it because I think Max is funny. She's lying. Hattie's lying. You think? Yep. 
think she's lying. I think she's going to see that Patty's boy, lying? Alex. Patty's lying. Well, wait a minute. We Patty's don't lying. know she's that she's lying. You know, she okay. needs a consequence because she lied. Alex? Okay, if she's lying, she needs a consequence or she's just going to keep lying. I would. The I would. I would. That's what got me. <laughs> you know, that that scene had two things that cracked me up. The first one was when Hattie was starting to leave the house. I missed it the first time I watched it, but when I rewatched it, Christina was like, whoa, Nelly. Ten- <laughs> yeah, I was like, who says whoa, Nelly? I thought that was great. But anyway, that was super inconsequential. I almost had you pull it, and I'm like, that's so dumb. I'm just going to mention it. Anyway. My, the first note I took in the, this whole Alex Hattie storyline was that I thought Alex's AA speech felt a little scripted. Oh. And I, I not criticizing so much as I am sort of sympathizing that I think it must be hard, especially on a show that strives to be very realistic, to write a character who is speaking kind of presentationally, mm. but then make that believable. Like, he's not purely just speaking off the cuff. He's standing at a podium. Yeah. I don't know. They say you have to hit rock bottom. Mm. And I'm like, really? Does Alex start his... Th- I mean, maybe he does. I Michael B. Jordan sold it. It didn't pull me out of the scene. I was just like, <laughs> this doesn't quite feel as authentic as it always does. Maybe it feels more authentic if you think of Alex being nervous to speak and he like writes something down and he's hmm. memorized it and he's and he started with cuz sometimes even original people if they're nervous they kind of rely on clichés or something they're like how should I begin this speech? This is away Mm. you know like like I've seen students of mine who think they should sound a certain way and I'm like no throw that out sound like you and then they're like oh you know so if you didn't run it by anybody you know (laughs) maybe it's so strange that reminds me of a presentation I did in high school in English class on the roaring 20s and whatever presentation I gave was very off the cuff i don't have a phobia of speaking in front of people. And yet I was aware that I had to have some conclusion to my presentation. And I think maybe I had given one earlier in that same class. And my teacher said, don't end the presentation with that's it. <laughs> Which I think I had done. And I was that's like, it? that's fair. I should I should come up with something <laughs> And so this Roaring Twenties one, I remember the last line of my presentation because it's the only line I actually wrote. And I said, the roar of the 20s will echo throughout history, which is not a terrible line, but it was not at all the tone of anything else I had said <laughs> in the presentation. The whole presentation was off the cuff and kind of wow. improvisatory. And then I had this very scripted, mm-hmm. obviously scripted line at the end. So, yeah, you're, you're right. That might be it. Speaking of specific lines, immediately after that scene when Hattie is like, that friend you're talking about, it, it was me, right? <laughs> when he said yes, I thought her response of, I feel really lucky. Was, it seemed so unexpected, but very beautiful. I loved that line. I put a, a note in, yeah, about that because I thought that is so something a teenage girl would say if she's happy and like in love and it's going well. And, you know, you just say, I feel really lucky. (laughs) And I just, it was beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, This storyline breaks my heart. Oh my God. It was, I mean, I loved the bird for obvious reasons, but it was probably my favorite, Mm. this one. 
Uh, because I think it too, that response sets it up so nicely. I, I think her performance in this mm. is stunning. Yeah. I also loved speaking of that line that it came after he had just praised her publicly. I mean, no. anonymously, but she knew. And that her response was not to feel really great about herself or, wow, I'm such a great, mm. look how wonderful I am that he thinks I'm so wonderful that it was, she felt gratitude. Yeah. And it just really made me think of an old adage about, you know, like the best relationships are where each person thinks they're getting the better end of the deal. Mm. I thought her instinct was to say, wow, I, how lucky am I that he thinks I'm so great? Not damn right. I'm so great. <laughs> anyway, what did you guys think of Adam's first meeting with Alex when Adam just shows up at the soup kitchen? Community center. That's what it was, wasn't it? When Adam asks him to dinner, it occurred to me that on my second watch, like really having it vividly in my head, what was going to end up happening. I just couldn't help but wonder. I was like, was Adam ever going to give this guy a chance? Like I I started to wonder, I was like, what's even the point of asking him to dinner? Was, Was the original plan? We'll get to know him if he's going to date our daughter. And then he was just surprised by all the things that were sort of revealed in that dinner. But then I wondered if he already thinks that Alex is maybe too old. I just wondered to what extent that was a really sincere invitation or if it, if, if in some level he knew this is how we're going to stop this by getting to know him and by cutting it off. And, and that's a really cynical way to look at it. And I'm not even arguing that that's what he was doing. I just, I couldn't help but wonder because I thought if you were as open as you seem right now, it seems like this beautiful invitation, come over for dinner. Let's welcome you into our home. You know, so I, I, that's, that's all I could think of the second time I watched it anyway. They had me. I mean, when he turned around, I was like, oh shit. (laughs) And then when I came to dinner, I was like, what a great dad. I mean, so I was, well, I didn't know what would inevitably happen. So I was like very impressed with his fathering in that moment of extending the, not really an olive branch. I mean, I guess she is 16, which is young. I don't know how old Alex is. We don't really either. I keep guessing 19. I don't know if I'm right. I, I don't know why I think that. That's just, I feel like he's not crazy older, but the way yeah. he talks about 16 being a little bit ago, it makes me think maybe 18, 19, something like that. Yeah. So I, I thought the gesture itself was good, but the follow through, very, very, very bad. <laughs> I liked the gesture, but I was a little distracted that Hattie clearly knew nothing about it. Yeah. And that she was kind of ambushed. And I I was just wondering, I mean, we've seen Adam be really not great around Hattie dating boys. And so given his history, I thought this could have gone way worse. And it was nice that he was rational and polite to Alex. Mm -hmm. But I, I just thought, like, why wouldn't you talk to Hattie first and say, hey, I'm thinking of inviting your friend over rather than clearly doing it in front of her when she had no idea. And then like when he shushed her, that just really bothered me. Mm. Like there was one moment where he's like, oh, just let me finish. And that's like, Adam, she's caught off guard. I think it might, looking back on it, it's like reveal a little bit, if I had been watching more carefully, revealed that his intentions were not pure. Mm. 
Do you know? It's almost like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing that looks good on paper when inevitably I'm just going to look for whatever it is, red flag. You know, I'm going to find a red flag. I still took his sincerity at face value. It just felt like, because I actually think dinner is a great idea. Like, mm-hmm. Christina caught Hattie and Alex kissing at the end of the last episode, and we didn't know what huh. was coming. And and given her history, too, I thought, well, and now they're going to really freak out. And so I thought, no, a dinner where everyone is together. We demystify everything. We all just get to know each other. It's like, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's better yeah. than nailing her windows shut. Anyway. And then Alex brought flowers. What a prince. Oh, my God. For Christina. That's amazing. I also thought this was funny from Max. You're black. Sorry, I'm sure Patty told you about Max, that. Max, that is not polite. No, it's quite all right. right. You're, you're absolutely right. I am black. Technically a little brown. Something you know, my Uncle Crosby's marrying a black woman, and they have a son who's half black. Yes. And if you and Hattie had a kid, Dinner. he'd look just like Jabbar. Oh, we're going to go and check the chicken. Stop. Jabbar would have a twin. Let's Wouldn't that go. be so awesome, guys? That's probably not going to happen tonight. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote down, there goes Max, giving greater attention to the interracial romances on this show than anyone has in a season and a half. <laughs> That's totally true. I liked that. Alex said, I prefer honesty in people later at the dinner. And that was his way of like saying he was fine with the sorts of things Max was saying. I thought, what a beautiful way to put that. I prefer honesty in people. Yeah. Yeah. Some really lovely lines. Well, what did you guys think of Alex at the dinner? Because I, I get that it was probably sort of the point of the episode, but I was like, man, Alex is really laying it on thick with all the stuff that he's been through. And I just wrote down, maybe don't share all that at your first dinner. (laughs) And weirdly, it felt a little bit like the show was painting him as so noble Mm. through all of this adversity that in a a way it almost felt insulting to me. Interesting. Let's just make this guy the absolute paragon of withstanding adversity. But I don't know. I thought Adam and Christina reacted pretty well and, I loved Max, like I said. I feel like someone in recovery, it rang true to me that you would be, I mean, I don't know, would you be that good at it after six months? But it <laughs> would be like, these are my cards on the table. I, what I loved about the, in, in terms of the writing, is that we've got someone being so transparent when I can't, I don't know how to explain to my kid that a bird is dead (laughs) without lying about heaven and that Mm. this guy comes in and I don't know Max, you know, for being my first episode. So I'm like, oh my God, and this kid, I was just really here for the, (laughs) you know, coming clean about the alcoholic and drug addicted father and how much we hide from, how much damage and sort of how corrosive it can be to not be transparent and certainly to an addict it is like one of the most corrosive things to have this guy kind of acting the principles of aa which i actually think for the record there should be like a people's anonymous like they are some of the most Mm. just straight ahead thoroughly good adult principles of living yeah i i was refreshed i thought wow he is really living or sort of I don't know how you would say it, but like living these principles and not letting he he would be as sick as his secrets. So he's not letting himself be sick like that, you know, is being so transparent. 
And I'm thinking if I was a parent, I would be like, home run. He doesn't drink. He's overcome. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. I could see that we were not going to go there, but I was like hopeful, mm-hmm. but I was like, there's no drama in that. But, you know, I don't see these parents not being scared away of that. But I thought it was a really beautiful statement on transparency and how uncomfortable full transparency makes people a lot of the time. Yeah. And so how much are we always kind of really telling heaven stories in one way or another, you know, and it's like Max doesn't have the ability to do that. And how nice, you know, how many people would walk around or for a season and a half, we walked around not acknowledging people were in interracial relationship. Not hard for Max, you know, oh, you're black. That's true. That's a fact. Yeah. And it causes a lot of damage when we ignore that people are the color they are. It's yeah. as damaging as persecuting them for it yeah. in a weird way. So yeah. I don't know. I would almost want to watch it again, Caleb, with your eye on it. But that was kind <laughs> of striking me as a, you know, as a newcomer. I was like, man, this guy is not hiding. <laughs> no. Well, I think you make a great point because I, when Alex sums up where he's coming from at the end, it, it made sense to me. I just got my six-month chip. Hattie went with me. She did. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. That's great. That's yeah. You should be really proud of yourself. That's tough to do. Good for you. Um, I'm solid. I want you guys to know that. I get that you guys are parents, and I understand how crazy all this must sound. But you go down the road you go down when you're younger. You learn what you learn from from watching, imitating what you see, what's right in front of you. But when you grow up, you get to make your own choices. Choices that are going to define who you are, you know, your morals, what you will stand for or what you'll fall for. Who you want to be. I want to be completely honest with you guys. So thank you for letting me be. Thank you. Thank you for being so honest. It made sense to me exactly what you said about like laying all the cards on the table. He's he's smart. He knows why he's there. He knows that this is kind of an audition yeah. in a way. Yeah. And that if he's going to pass the audition, he wants to pass it with them having all the information that it's not, yeah. well, I'll show you the the easiest parts of me first. And I'm so glad you mentioned specifically you're as sick as your secrets. Because it does seem, it just encapsulates exactly that. If he kept it from them, even though it is the first time they've really met, then if they like gave their blessing, are they really giving their full blessing when they don't know everything? Yeah, so right. it does come on a little strong, but it's just, it's kind of just radical honesty. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. okay, okay, that's a very good reason. Sometimes... I'll discuss episodes with my husband, Mark, because he's kind of invested. He doesn't watch every single episode. He didn't even watch this one. But I told him that this one broke my heart and I explained what happened. And Mark really surprised me. He said, that does seem like a lot to put on a 16-year-old. I kind of understand where Adam and Christina are coming from. And I was like, what? Because I just, (laughs) the only reason I even mentioned Mark's reaction is because it was so the opposite of mine. And I wonder if he'd seen the episode, if he would feel the same way. Because, you know, who doesn't love Michael B. Jordan? And God, that the, the way that he 
delivers all these lines and gives this information about himself. It's just beautiful. So I really, I'm glad Mark said that because it made me like go back and think, okay, would that be just so hard? You know, I'm not a parent, you know, if, if your 16 year old wanted to be in a, a pretty adult relationship, you know, with a guy who lived alone and had been through all that, maybe that would be hard. But I think ultimately, no, I really feel like it's bonkers that these parents let Hattie date this generic guy, Steve, last season, who ended up being kind of a cliche and like just, you know, without getting all into it, you know, he was your typical guy. But I'm like, God, I would so much rather my daughter be with someone like this, with integrity, with with yeah. honesty, this with kind person. Yes. And I'm like, if it freaks you out that you think your daughter is too young for something this mature, the the response is not to forbid it. That's just, that's, that in my mind, that's never going to work in a million years. You should be vulnerable, I think, <laughs> again, the non-parent, but I think you should be vulnerable with your daughter and tell her why you're freaked out and say, yeah. what, what can we do? How, what, what, what boundaries can we create together to make us comfortable, but let you be with this obviously wonderful person? I thought it was a really beautiful juxtaposition, or, or no, that's actually the wrong word. It was beautiful to see parents who were trying to have a hard conversation about death and then watching one of them cave. Yeah. And then watch these two parents who's pure, I mean, in my, again, not a parent, but watching it, I'm like, God, you guys are choosing your own comfort above her. Like that, yeah. that was the only way mm. I saw it. Yeah. I was like, you are choosing you're saying you're protecting her, but you're not. She isn't a child and maybe it would be a good opportunity. Yeah, like you said, Melissa, to set some boundaries about what honesty really is and what transparency is and how they will need that from her if she would were to pursue this relationship or to be honest with her and say, we here's why we're concerned. Here's why this feels too mature, too adult. But again, it goes back to like, so you're going to shield her from it? What good does it do her? Or are you going to let her fend for herself? You're so right. They're they're cleaning her room for her. Yeah. yeah. Damn. Damn. Yes. And I thought the exact same thing as what you just said, Melissa, because I, I, it just seemed like, oh, didn't you skip some steps? And I, I, I was literally wrote down the same thing you did. Like, tell her what your concerns are. And then in that last scene where they tell Hattie she says to them, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And I thought, and they don't answer her. No. And I thought that is a really good question. I mean, it's coming in a moment of she's kind of fight or flight. Hattie's gone into fight. What do you, and so it's, she asks it combatively, but it's a really smart question. And really it's sort of an invitation for them to be vulnerable. Like you said, to say, here's what we think might happen. You might end up feeling like, you're responsible for his sobriety mm -hmm. or something, you know, which she's not. And that's of a, I think their concerns are totally valid, actually. And in that sense, I agree with Mark. I don't think they're crazy to be worried, but I just think they, they are then reacting to those concerns out of pure fear and yes, prioritizing their own comfort. Well, we'll feel better if she just doesn't see him. And I also yeah. thought you've gone to the trouble of meeting this young man now He's been in your home. I actually thought it was cowardly to just tell Hattie 
and be like, go relay the information to Alex. I thought you at least should call him up and say this to his face. And if you can't do that, how can you expect your daughter who's in love with him, I think, (laughs) to do that? You know, like that, that's just shitty. I actually didn't blame her at all when she couldn't tell Alex because how is she supposed to do that? Yeah. Yeah. You are inside my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and because I wrote, how are you supposed to tell this great guy who's moving mountains to not let the worst things that have happened to him completely define himself, that he's so scary to her parents that they won't let you see him anymore. Yeah. And I said, if this is what Adam and Christina want, then they have to tell Alan. Yeah. I thought that too. Wow. That's crazy that we both thought that. I just, I, I thought this was just awful. And, and, I get that it's a lot, but I'm like, you know, if you said to Hattie, let's, let's, uh, set some ground rules. It it makes us nervous that he has an apartment. You can't go to his apartment. He has to come here. Like, I mean, there, there, there are, there are ways to deal with this. And, and I just can't get over the fact that they didn't have half of this conversation with this just generic guy that, that she dated. I would be like you said, MK, thrilled jackpot my daughter has met the most incredible person i get that it's going to be tricky i get that it's hard and and you know maybe again it's easy to say if you don't have a kid yourself but hattie is so mature i i think they really sell her short yeah yeah it must be tough with a teenager because i just kept thinking i get she's only 16 but i just get this feeling that you're making this decision for her not with her and that can't be good right like you uh, it's, I mean, I don't know, kind of goes back to the machete thing I was saying earlier. <laughs> it's like, if she has tools and she's, you know, th- there's no reason not to put this in her hands. Yeah. And then like, tell her she can't go to the zoo if she doesn't clean her room. You know, it's like, then like <laughs> a sort of consequence after the fact, but to just forbid it from up front, I thought, oh my God, it felt horrible. I was, I said to my partner, Tamara, I was like, you got to watch this. This is, this is infuriating. <laughs> I'm going to start watching the show and you're going to see this episode and you're going to, I was so mad. I was yeah, mad for yeah. Hattie and that's got to be hard to negotiate with a teenager. You know, what, what is the right way to protect them? But I thought this was not it. No. Yeah. Well, and they, and at one point, like, I think Adam even says this conversation's over. Yeah. Uh. And I was like, why wouldn't you let, I mean, even if you're going to make this decision, which we've already said, we all think is misguided to say the least, why wouldn't you at least let your child express their anger or their pain or their confusion? I feel like if you're going to hand down such a hard sentence, then that's kind of the price you pay. You have to sit there and listen to her express it. And it's again, yeah. because they've chosen their comfort and that wasn't comfortable for them. Yeah. yeah. Damn. Chosen. You're really protecting yourself. Yeah. Your own comfort. You know, I, we, we've talked about race before, but when Hattie says, is this because he's black? And, and they said, absolutely not. Your mother and I are not racists is the way they, they phrase that. I did want to throw it out there. Did either of you think it did have anything to do with race. Like, do you think that like if he were a white kid with the exact same background and, and life, do you think it would have gone the exact same way? I'm just, maybe that's impossible to know, but I was curious. I believed them when they said that didn't weigh into their decision. And cause we did hear them discuss mm-hmm. between themselves. Yeah. What was concerning them. But I think you raise a good point that if you ask them as Hattie does, 
they might not even be able to answer honestly. Yeah. Like they might not, it may have changed their minds and they didn't even know it. And maybe it didn't. And that's, I guess, the unknowable part of it. Right, it is. I think too, we have such a different definition of, of racism than at least I think for white people, then a, a, a definition we understood at the time this was. So even just nine years or ten, the, a 10 year anniversary of this episode, it's like for a white person to sit there and say, I'm not racist. Now I think we go, well, that's impossible. You absolutely are. Mm-hmm. Because even if you have impl- you know, inherent bias that you're not aware of, we, we are all victims to that system of racism. Like we're, we're all a part, not victim. I didn't mean to say it like that, but it's like, if you're not conscious about your whiteness in relationship to race, then you are being racist. You can't help. It's not a thing. It's not relegated only to a violent act or a judgment you're willing to admit. The way that I think race might've impacted that was making Alex seem even more other you know, even more different from them and what they're used to. And when they are frightened of how adult he is and his background, I, I think on some unconscious level that adds in. And I, I may not be as convinced of it if not for the end of the previous episode where Christina looks absolutely yeah. freaked out. Yeah, and you're right. Adam, Adam freaked out about her previous boyfriend, but Christina didn't no. about like that they might be fooling around. Yeah. She, she was very fine with she that. She was a teenage girl. I mean, she didn't want them to have sex. Right. But she didn't think it was great. She didn't go off the handle. But Steve felt expected to Christina. Yeah. He totally was her quote age. Unquote, safe. Right. He was her age and in high school and living with his parents and white. You know, I think all of those things are tied up. That's who they expect or who maybe Christina expected yeah. her daughter to be with. Alex is not what they would have expected. And instead of, yeah, trying to open their minds more, I mean, they were very gracious to him in their home, but then they turn around and just forbid, you know, and so anyway, it's awful. Yeah. Something I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, MK, was that Sarah references her ex, Seth, in this episode as an alcoholic. And then Alex is present in this episode as an alcoholic And I never sort of drew a line between them. But with the way Adam and Christina are reacting to Alex, potentially dating their daughter, kind of makes me wonder if it were Sarah who had a teenager who was potentially about to date an alcoholic, would she be more understanding because she knew what it was like to be in a relationship with an alcoholic? Or would she be even more frightened because Mm. she knew what it was like? That's a great question. Just as we were talking about Adam and Christina's reaction, I thought there's no context. You know, if it if Christina said, well, you know, my father was an alcoholic and that really scares me, mm-hmm. yeah. then I would understand her perspective more. And then I thought, well, there is someone in this series who has experience with that. It's Sarah. And we see her deal with it in this episode. Yeah. But yeah, I I thought not a single storyline here was was um kind of throwaway or silly. Like I just it, it I really it was on my second watch. I was like, damn it, this is a good one. I just really loved it. So I could I see it hooking it a person. First. Yeah, I think I think you stumbled into a really great first episode. Yeah. <laughs> I read an old review of some previous episode 
that called Parenthood the best unoriginal show that there is. <laughs> and I think they meant it sort of as a backhanded compliment. Yeah. But they said, you know, the storylines are often things that we've seen a million other places, but that this show handles them in unexpected ways or just really well. And I thought about that with Drew's storyline. Mm-hmm. It could have been so after school special. Uh-oh, you're not supposed to drink. Drinking equals bad. <laughs> and they took the first half of that storyline and kept it. But then it went into, oh, you need to be aware that you were born of an alcoholic and you might have some issues in this area. Well, that's a real new take. Yeah. And yeah, I thought it was a great episode. And like I said earlier, like, I feel like the title of this episode really does apply mm. to all the different storylines of damage control, of, of picking up a mess, either that was from a previous episode, like the drinking, like Alex and Hattie kissing, or if it was, uh-oh, our daughter has discovered death. What do we do? Or yeah. someone won't <laughs> clean his room. How do I handle Literal it? Literal mess. Yeah. One thing that I forgot to say about the bird storyline Every time he took off the lid before he knew the bird was dead, I thought if the bird had been stunned (laughs) and woke up, when you took off the lid, it would just fly away. And I thought, well, there's your lie. Uh, When Sydney's not there, just uh, go toss the bird out and say, Amelia woke up. She flew (laughs) out of the house. She's gone. (laughs) Done. Sidestep the whole (laughs) conversation. That's what I would do if I were a parent. (laughs) And Jasmine would say (laughs) <laughs> easy is not good parenting, but I would say, watch me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. it. Tempting. Well, MK, thank you Yay! so much for being here. Thanks guest. for having me. This was a delight. For loaning your brilliant mind to us and shedding light on things. And it was it just is the so most wonderful. Truly. I mean, I don't know if many people have said this to you both during COVID. It's one of the most interesting things I've done in 10 months. Oh, (laughs) that's not, I mean, again, Melissa, I love you by proxy because I love (laughs) you, but it's really been a treat, a highlight. (laughs) Well, I, I, I have found for me that it is the most fun way to either catch up with with guests that we have on who are like old friends of mine or like the most interesting first meeting I could ever have with a person you know like cut the yeah. small talk let's yeah, you just, just talk life and death yeah with best <laughs> right it's like let's just dive in and and have real conversation and real human connection which during the pandemic is what so many of us are craving and what we miss. Yeah. And so I, I'm really happy Caleb and I have started this, even if, you know, hardly anyone ever hears it, or maybe more people are listening than I think. It's hard to gauge sometimes. And, and but just selfishly, I'm glad we're doing it because it's been this beautiful experience. So <laughs> that's about more than just TV, you know, it, it feels very enriching in a way that's that's like the like the TV show is almost the jumping off point in some ways. Yeah. So MK, where can our listeners find you online if they would like to do so? <laughs> uh, I have a new Instagram handle, and by new I mean I've never had one before. I'm instantly Ooh. MK. Instantly, instantly MK. MK. I love it. That's and so great. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, MK Lawson, and I actually. I didn't even think of plugging this, so I appreciate you asking. A dear friend of mine, Ben Bartels, and I put a little creativity into starting a podcast during the pandemic as well. 
Um, and it uh -huh. should be dropping in a couple of weeks. It's called Fabricated. You should look out for it. It's basically us two people who are sort of by trade storytellers or people who engage in the art and craft of storytelling. And we just really wanted to look at the way stories have been impacting our lives lately and really trying to unpack when stories are fiction but when, when stories maybe get a little bit out of hand and start to run our lives and we don't recognize them as stories anymore. And, that sounds fascinating. And, and how can we find value in the stories we tell and the stories we consume? Well, look out for fabricated listeners. Thanks, Katie. And thanks, <laughs> Melissa. It was just wonderful to meet you. It was friend. wonderful. <laughs> yes, new friend. <laughs> Please do check us out. Um, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like us on Facebook, Parenthood Pals, everywhere. Or at our website, parenthoodpals.com. <laughs> Thank you to MK again. Yay! Thank you to our listeners. And until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.